0: Welcome to Adventures in Audio, a podcast featuring short stories by authors like Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, and others. I'm Victoria Phelps. To enjoy this podcast to the fullest, it's advised to remove all mental debris from your brain. And once the chasms of your mind are void of all mental contamination, you're ready to enjoy these classic stories. And now, here's your host, Robert Crandall. Greetings, dear friends. I'm Robert Crandall, your host. I'm glad you've chosen to listen to this podcast. I'm delighted with your presence. We are now on Stitcher and iTunes, as well as other directories, but you can always find the podcast at adventuresinaudio.net. Each week, I will read a story of horror, mystery, crime, and related genres. No need to read. I'll read it for you. Just get back and relax and enjoy the story. Now, on this episode, we're going to hear a story about a beast that devours animals of all kinds, but it is especially fond of little children. The story, Gabriel Ernest by Saki. There is a wild beast in your woods, said the artist Cunningham, as he was being driven to the station. It was the only remark he had made during the drive, but as Van Cheel had talked incessantly, his companion's silence had not been noticeable. A stray fox or two or some resident weasels, nothing more formidable, said Van Cheele. The artist said nothing. What did you mean about a wild beast? said Van Cheele later, when they were on the platform. Nothing, nothing, my imagination. Here is the train, said Cunningham. That afternoon Van Cheel went for one of his frequent rambles through his woodland property. He had a stuffed bittern in his study, and knew the names of quite a number of wild flowers. So his aunt had possibly some justification in describing him as a naturalist. At any rate, he was a great walker. It was his custom to take mental notes of everything he saw during his walks, not so much for the purpose of assisting contemporary science as to provide topics for conversation afterwards. When the bluebells began to show themselves in the flower, he made a point of informing everyone of the facts. The season of the year might have warned his hearers of the likelihood of such an occurrence, but at least they felt that he was being absolutely frank with them. What Van Cheel saw on this particular afternoon was, however, something far removed from his ordinary range of experience. On a shelf of smooth stone, overhanging a deep pool in the hollow of an oak coppice, a boy of about sixteen— lay a sprawl drying his wet brown limbs luxuriously in the sun. His wet hair parted by a recent dive lay close to his head, and his light brown eyes so light that there was an almost tigerish gleam in them were turned towards Van Chiel with a certain lazy watchfulness. It was an unexpected apparition, and Van Cheel found himself engaged in the novel process of thinking before he spoke. Where on earth could this wild-looking boy hail from? The miller's wife had lost a child some two months ago, supposed to have been swept away by the mill race, but that had been a mere baby, not a half-grown lad. What are you doing there? He demanded. Obviously sunning myself, replied the boy. Where do you live? Here in these woods. You can't live in the woods, said Van Geel. They're very nice woods, said the boy with a touch of patronage in his voice. But where do you sleep at night? I don't sleep at night. That's my busiest time. Van Geel began to have an irritated feeling that he was grappling with a problem that was eluding him. ''What do you feed on?'' he asked. ''Flesh,'' said the boy, and he pronounced the word with slow relish, as though he were tasting it. ''Flesh? What flesh?'' ''Since it interests you. Rabbits, wild fowl, hares, poultry, lambs in their season. Children when I can get any. They're usually too well locked in at night.'' when I do most of my hunting. It's quite two months since I tasted child flesh. Ignoring the chafing nature of the last remark, Van Cheele tried to draw the boy on the subject of possible poaching operations. You're talking rather through your hat when you're speaking of feeding on hares. Considering the nature of the boy's toilet, the simile was hardly an apt one. Our hillside hares aren't easily caught. At night I hunt on four feet, was the somewhat cryptic response. I suppose you mean that you hunt with a dog, hazard Van Gio. The boy rolled slowly over on his back and laughed a weird low laugh that was pleasantly like a chuckle and disagreeably like a snarl. I don't fancy any dog would be very anxious for my company, especially at night. Van Chil began to feel that there was something positively uncanny about the strange-eyed, strange-tongued youngster. I can't have you staying in these woods, he declared authoritatively. I fancy you'd rather have me here than in your house, said the boy. The prospect of this wild, nude animal in Van Chil's primly ordered house was certainly an alarming one. If you don't go, I shall have to make you, said Van Chiel. The boy turned like a flash, plunged into the pool, and in a moment had flung his wet and glistening body halfway up the bank where Van Chiel was standing. In an otter, the movement would not have been remarkable. In a boy, Van Cheel found it sufficiently startling. His foot slipped as he made an involuntary backward movement, and he found himself almost prostrate on the slippery, weed-grown bank, with those tigerish yellow eyes not far from his own. Almost instinctively he half raised his hand to his throat. The boy laughed again, a laugh in which the snarl had nearly driven out the chuckle. And then with another of his astonishing lightning movements plunged out of view into a yielding tangle of weed and fern. What an extraordinary wild animal, said Van Tiel as he picked himself up, and then he recalled Cunningham's remark. There is a wild beast in your woods, walking slowly homeward. Van Cheel began to turn over in his mind various local occurrences which might be traceable to the existence of this astonishing young savage. Something had been thinning the game in the woods lately. Poultry had been missing from the farms, hares were growing unaccountably scarcer, and the complaints had reached him of lambs being carried off bodily from the hills. Was it possible that this wild boy was really hunting the countryside in company with some clever poacher dogs? He had spoken of hunting four-footed by night, but then again he had hinted strangely at no dog caring to come near him, especially at night. It was certainly puzzling, and then as Van Cheel ran his mind over the various depredations that had been committed during the last month or two, he came suddenly to a dead stop alike in his walk and his speculations. The child missing from the mill two months ago, the accepted theory was that it had tumbled into the mill race and been swept away, but the mother had always declared she had heard a shriek on the hill side of the house in the opposite direction from the water. It was unthinkable, of course, but he wished that the boy had not made that uncanny remark about child flesh eaten two months ago. Such dreadful things should not be said even in fun. Van Chiel, contrary to his usual want, did not feel disposed to be communicative about his discovery in the wood. His position as parish counselor and justice of the peace seemed somehow compromised by the fact he was harboring a personality of such doubtful repute on his property, there was even a possibility that a heavy bill of damages for raided lambs and poultry might be laid at his door. At dinner that night he was quite unusually silent. "'Where's your voice gone to?' said his aunt. "'One would think you'd seen a wolf!' Van Cheele, who was not familiar with the old saying, thought the remark rather foolish." If he had seen a wolf on his property, his tongue would have been extraordinarily busy with the subject. At breakfast next morning, Van Cheel was conscious that his feeling of uneasiness regarding yesterday's episode was not wholly disappeared, and he resolved to go by train to the neighboring cathedral town, hunt up Cunningham, and learn from him what he had really seen that had prompted the remark about a wild. BEAST IN THE WOODS. With this resolution taken, his usual cheerfulness partially returned, and he hummed a bright little melody as he sauntered to the morning room for his customary cigarette. As he entered the room, the melody made way abruptly for a pious invocation. Gracefully a on the ottoman, in an attitude of almost exaggerated repose, was the boy of the woods. He was drier than when Vanchiel had last seen him, but no other alteration was noticeable in his toilet. How dare you come here? asked Vanchiel furiously. You told me I was not to stay in the woods," said the boy calmly. But not to come here. Supposing my aunt should see you, and with a view to minimizing that catastrophe. Van Cheel hastily obscured as much of his unwelcome guest as possible under the folds of a morning post. At that moment his aunt entered the room. This is a poor boy who has lost his way and lost his memory. He doesn't know who he is or where he comes from, explained Van Chiel desperately, glancing apprehensively at the waist's face to see whether he was going to add inconvenient candor to his other savage propensities. Miss Van Chiel was enormously interested. Perhaps his underlinen is marked, she suggested. He seems to have lost most of that, too, said Van Chiel, making frantic little grabs at the morning post to keep it in its place. A naked homeless child appealed to Miss Van Chiel as warmly as a stray kitten or a derelict puppy would have done. "'We must do all we can for him,' she decided, and in a very short time a messenger dispatched to the rectory, where a page boy was kept had returned with a suit of pantry clothes and the necessary accessories of shirt, shoes, collar, etc. Clothed, clean, and groomed, the boy lost none of his uncanniness in Van Cheele's eyes, but his aunt found him sweet. "'We must call him something,' Till we know who he really is,' she said. "'Gabriel, Ernest, I think those are nice, suitable names.' Van Cheele agreed, but he privately doubted "'whether they were being grafted onto a nice, suitable child. "'His misgivings were not diminished by the fact "'that his staid and elderly spaniel "'had bolted out of the house at the first incoming of the boy, "'and now... Obstinately remained shivering and yapping at the farther end of the orchard, while the canary, usually as vocally industrious as Van Cheel himself, had put itself on an allowance of frightened cheeps. More than ever, he was resolved to consult Cunningham without loss of time. As he drove off to the station, his aunt was arranging that Gabriel Ernest should help her entertain the infant members of her Sunday school class at tea that afternoon. Cunningham was not at first disposed to be communicative. My mother died of some brain trouble, he explained, so you will understand why I am adverse to dwelling on anything of an impossibly fantastic nature that I may see or think that I have seen. What did you see? persisted Van Cheel. What I thought I saw was something so extraordinary that no really sane man could dignify it with the credit of having actually happened. I was standing, that last evening I was with you, half hidden in the hedge grove by the orchard gate, watching the dying glow of the sunset. Suddenly I became aware of a naked boy, a bather from some neighboring pool, I took him to be, who was standing out on the bare hillside also watching the sunset. His pose was so suggestive of some wild fawn of pagan myth that I instantly wanted to engage him as a model, and in another moment I think I should have hailed him. But just then the sun dipped out of view, and all the orange and pink slid out of the landscape, leaving it cold and gray.' At the same moment, an astounding thing happened. The boy vanished, too. What? Vanished away into nothing? asked Van Cheel excitedly. No, that is the dreadful part of it, answered the artist. On the open hillside where the boy had been standing a second ago stood a large wolf, blackish in color, with gleaming fangs and cool yellow eyes. You may think but Van Cheele did not stop for anything as futile as thought. Already he was tearing at top speeds toward the station. He dismissed the idea of a telegram, Gabriel Ernest as a werewolf, was a hopelessly inadequate effort at conveying the situation, and his aunt would think it was a code message to which he had omitted to give her the key. His one hope was that he might reach home before sundown, the cab which he chartered at the other end of the railway journey bore him with what seemed exasperating slowness along the country roads, which were pink and mauve with the flush of the sinking sun. His aunt was putting away some unfinished jams and cake when he arrived. Where is Gabriel Ernest? He almost screamed. He's taking the little two-child home, said his aunt. It was getting so late I thought it wasn't safe to let him go back alone. What a lovely sunset, isn't it? But Van Cheel, although not oblivious to the glow of the western sky, did not stay to discuss its beauties. At a speed for which he was scarcely geared, he raced along the narrow lane that led to the home of the Toops. On one side ran the swift current of the mill stream, on the other rose the stretch of bare Hillside. A dwindling rim of red sun showed still in the skyline, and the next turning must bring him in view of the ill assorted couple he was pursuing. Then the color went suddenly out of things, and a gray light settled itself with a quick shiver over the landscape. Van Chil heard a shrill wail of fear and stopped running. Nothing was ever seen again of the toop child or of Gabriel Ernest, but the latter's discarded garments were found lying on the road, so it was assumed that the child had fallen into the water and that the boy had stripped and jumped in in a vain endeavor to save it. Van Cheel and some workmen, who were nearby at the time, testified to having heard a child scream loudly, just near the spot where the clothes were found. Mrs. Toop, who had 11 other children, was decently resigned to her bereavement, but Miss Van Chiel sincerely mourned her lost foundling. It was on her initiative that a memorial brass was put up in the parish church to Gabriel Ernest, an unknown boy who bravely sacrificed his life for another. Van Chiel gave way to his aunt in most things, but he flatly refused to subscribe to the Gabriel Ernest Memorial. You've been listening to Gabriel Ernest by Saki. Now that the mental debris has been removed and the chasms of your mind have been purged of contamination and restored with substance. You are ready to rejoin the living. Caution is advised. I hope you'll visit again soon, and I hope all is well. Thank you.